We're going to have our reading now. It's from Luke 21, uh, verses 25 to 38. That's on page uh, 1056, 1056 in the church Bibles. If you need a church Bible, do, uh, do just uh, put your hand up if you like. Brilliant. I'm going to read that now. It's Luke 21, verse 25 to 38. So Jesus has just told his disciples about the destruction of the temple. And now he talks about the signs of the end times. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be, ang- will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth, Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him. At the temple. Really helpful if you had Luke 21, verses 25 to 38 open in front of you. It's particularly because I have um, max, maximum strength cold and flu tablets, and they sometimes have an effect on me. Um, so it'd be really good to have it open in front of you to make sure that what I'm saying is coming from the Bible and not coming from the tablets. So um, have Luke 21, verses 25 to 38 open in front of you. Let me set the scene. Jesus is standing on He's looking down on the temple and uh, the most magnificent building in the land of Israel. His followers are awed by it, but he has spent the last few minutes explaining that that building is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem itself is going to be destroyed. But in this passage, Jesus shifts his focus from the destruction of Jerusalem to the end of the world. If you look at verse 25, the focus is no longer Israel, it's the nation's. If you look at verse 26, it's not just Jerusalem that's affected, it's the whole, it's the world. And then verse 35, it's the whole earth. So in this passage, Jesus is fixing our eyes on the moment when everything will change, when we see Jesus visibly. When we see Jesus visibly, 
you ever take time to reflect on that? Does that thrill your hearts? It should fill our hearts, shouldn't it? And that's what we're thinking about as we read this passage. Now, it's not a passage where everything in it is immediately... Verse 34, the opening words of that, they are words that feel quite familiar to me. Look at, look at verse 34. Look at the opening words of verse 34. They're words that I find myself using quite a lot. Be careful. Be careful. That puddle is deeper than your wellies. Your brother is not a trampoline. The roof is not a dance floor. Be careful. There's risk. There's a risk here, and uh, you're not noticing it. You're not engaging with it. You're not taking it seriously. What is the risk in verse 34? Well, look at the end of the verse. You can see the risk. The risk is that that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. I picture a little gray mouse scurrying around, maybe under my sink, and uh, it's, it's finding its way, sniffing along very happily along uh, all the different smells, and it smells some peanut butter. And it comes up and it begins to enjoy some peanut butter. Then suddenly, snap, a trap closes on it and it's caught. That's the picture. The day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Now, what day? What day is it that's in view here? Well, we look on at verse 35. A day that will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. We look back up to verses 25 and 26 and we see it's a day of terror. Look at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. The fixed points in the sky will suddenly be shaken and the pandemonium of the sea will be overwhelming. Verse 26, people will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. There will be chaos in the sky, leading to foreboding in people's hearts, Foreboding will be so intense that it will crush many people. But if we look at verse 28, it won't be a day of terror for everyone. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Imagine a young woman who's a captive in a camp in a remote part of the desert. She's surrounded by watchtowers and razor wire and guards who are busily getting on with their lives. But then one day, she catches a sense of unease in the camp. Someone has seen something. They they think it might have been a surveillance drone up in the sky. And there's concern going around. What what, what is it? What was was that? Was it? If, If so, what does that mean? Then suddenly... There's the scream of a fast jet going overhead and missiles are launched from the jet and destroy the watchtowers. And then there's, uh, as people are are, are reeling from those explosions, suddenly there's the roar of rotors and dust is churned up in the camp. And in the face of overwhelming force, her captors flee and run, panic, running for the hills. But she lifts up her head and sees him, the man who said he would come and get her from anywhere. He's abseiling down from one of the helicopters. He's come 
he's here. And it's disaster and panic for them. But for her, it is rescue and it is joy. She and her captors are seeing exactly the same thing. But it means something utterly different for them. And it will be the same on that future day that we are talking about. Every human on earth will see the same thing. But they will have directly opposite reactions to it. Profound terror for some and pure joy for others. What is it that everyone will see? Verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is what Jesus taught consistently, that he would return visibly and gloriously. Mark 13, verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Matthew 16, verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Matthew 24, verse 27. As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus will visibly appear. After he died, after he rose again, he spent six weeks with his disciples, nearly six weeks, proving to them that he was alive. And then they watched him rise up into the sky. And they stood there gaping at the clouds. But but suddenly angels were standing alongside them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so that's what the New Testament church preached. A visible, glorious return of King Jesus from the heavens. The Apostle John told us, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Jesus will visibly and suddenly appear, returning to rescue his people and crush his enemies. And that seems hard to believe. Because we look around the world and everything carries on as it has always done. Everything carries on in apparent normality. Most people don't believe it. And most people won't believe it until it happens. I think that's the meaning of verse 32. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The word translated generation there indicates a group of people that are linked together. It might be that they are all born about the same time, like Generation X, But it could just be that they're similar in another way. And regularly, Jesus spoke about the generation in front of him. And he said, this generation is characterized by people shutting their eyes 
to everything that he's doing, refusing to listen to what he's saying, demanding signs from him, when he has made who he is so very, very plain. And the panic that comes on the world as Jesus returns in verses 25 and 26 shows us that is going to be the character of the mainstream of human society until the day that Jesus returns. And the danger for us as his disciples is that we'll get sucked into that because it's the air we breathe. It's the culture that surrounds us. It's the normal, default way to be. And so, verse 34, what do we need to do? We need to be careful. Be careful. Why? Or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. The danger is that our hearts are weighed down because they've been filled up by this world. And so we have turned away from Christ and the prospect of his coming no longer delights us. How do you feel about the fact that this afternoon the sky could suddenly begin to shake and then Jesus visibly appear? I hope that idea fills you with joy. It may cause you a legitimate sadness at the thought of your friends and your family who haven't put their trust in him. The fact that their time has now run out. And that's a right way to feel. We know that God himself feels that. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's right that we we long for judgment to be held back so that people will put their trust in Jesus. But it might be that there's something in your heart that says, oh no, not today. I have plans. I have dreams. I I haven't yet. And if that's your thought about the coming of Jesus, then you should be concerned. It suggests that your desires are not set on his return. It suggests that you are not living by faith. It suggests that your heart is weighed down. And that's frightening because it means that you are losing the thing that distinguishes Christians from everyone else. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, Paul describes Christians as those who have longed for Christ's appearing. Those who have longed for Christ's appearing. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, He describes the Corinthian Christians as those who eagerly await for the coming of Christ. And Paul contrasts such faithful real Christians with Demas in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. Demas, we are told, has loved the world and so has walked away from faithfulness to serving God. And in 1 John 2 verse 15, we're told that loving the world is a very serious thing. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Our hearts cannot belong to God 
and the world. Now, yes, we are to love and care for our neighbors. They're made in God's image. Yes, we are to delight in, rejoice, care for this planet that God has entrusted us with. Yes, you should love this town and seek what's good for this town. God has placed you here. But our hearts cannot be set on God and also set on a world that is in rebellion against him, on gaining that world. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We need to be careful that our love for God is not dissolved by our love for this world. Come back with me to that camp in the desert. Imagine that young woman again. And imagine that while she's there, she's gradually taken on the worldview of her captors, become sympathetic to their cause, joined up with their cause, taken up their weapons. And so when her hero lands, she doesn't run to him and safety. She joins the others who are fighting and fleeing. And she's killed. That's the danger that Jesus wants us to be aware of. Otherwise, when he returns, we won't lift up our heads, ready to run for him, ready ready to run to him. We'll run from him, like the rest of our generation, and face his judgment. We'll share their fate. That day will close on you suddenly, like a trap. So Jesus says, be careful, be careful, watch yourself. He says there's two roots to getting absorbed in this world, getting a heart that's weighed down. Do you see that there in verse 34? Do you see the two roots? Number one is with carousing and drunkenness. I'm glad Phil did the reading because I wasn't sure how to pronounce that word, carousing. It's not one that I use often in uh, normal conversation. I was planning to ask my mum how to pronounce it, but then Phil was doing the reading and I thought, I'll just follow him. What he says, I'll say. Carousing. Now, but, but the Greek word behind that, the word that's translated carousing, it is a very straightforward word. It means to party so hard that you have a hangover. It's taken from the Latin word for hangover. It's very closely linked to the next word, drunkenness. The abuse of alcohol. And that's something that the New Testament sees as incompatible with following Christ. Galatians 5 verse 21 tells us that drunkenness is a work of the flesh that will keep us out of the kingdom of God. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 10 lists drunkards in the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we think, why so harsh on drunkenness? I mean, God is the creator of grapes. Jesus made wine for a wedding. Paul told us that everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4. But drunkenness is an abuse of God's good gift, of God's good gifts. It's an intentional abandonment of self-control when God has warned us that our hearts are full of sin that wants to overpower us. It's an abandonment of our responsibility to make the most of every opportunity. And it's a numbing of our hearts 
to the glory of God. Now, it's not that drunkenness is such a big sin that the cross can't cover it. No, no, no. Jesus' cross can cover any sin. It buys forgiveness for everything that we have done. For Jesus' followers, there is forgiveness for everything. For those who take up their cross and follow him as they come to him with empty hands. But it's impossible for us to claim that we are following Christ while we openly reject, happily reject his authority and his commands. Imagine that you're chatting to someone um, over coffee in a few minutes' time, and uh, they say, oh, I'm getting baptized today. And you say, wonderful, wonderful. And you say, what's, what, what's your work? And they say, oh, I'm, I'm a thief. I, I specialize in uh, late model Range Rovers um, with the keyless car entry system. It's a fantastic business. Um, I can get you one if you'd like. Um, so, okay, and you're getting baptized. See, that doesn't seem to match up. It doesn't seem to match up that you're claiming you're following Jesus, And you're living as a thief. Paul says that if someone's been a thief, he must steal no longer. Instead, work with his hands that he's got something to give to those in need. Yes, you can be someone who who struggles with temptation. We all are. Yes, you can be someone who, who struggles with the desire, with covetousness. But you can't be someone who is settled happily in rebellion against God in an area of your life, knowing that he tells you it is wrong. And yet you just shrug your shoulders against it. And so in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, Paul tells us that if someone claims to be a Christian, but is habitually drunk, then we should warn them. And if they won't listen, then we shouldn't eat with them. So they'll get a wake-up call and we won't get messed up ourselves by their casual attitude towards sin that they combine with a claim to be following Jesus. Because drunkenness is, is root one to a weighed down heart that no longer eagerly waits for Christ's return. Uh, and maybe that is what you need to hear this morning. Maybe this has become a settled pattern of rebellion against God's commands in your life. Maybe as you compare this to last night, you think I need to turn around and change. And resolve to go a different way. In which case, I'd love to chat and pray with you afterwards. And I know others here would. But, but drunkenness, I don't think, is the only route. It's not the only thing that is like this. Any sin we tolerate so much that we get mastered by it can lead us away from Christ. It might be the desire to be the center of attention which leads to habitual gossip. It might be lust leading to porn addiction. It might be envy leading to fits of rage. Now, there is forgiveness for all of these things at the cross, but a contented indulgence of them is incompatible with taking up your cross and eagerly awaiting Christ's return. Where these things are in your life, hear the words of Christ. Mark 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Resolve to deal with these things today. There are lots of wise and godly people here who would love to chat and pray with you as you resolve to go a different way. If you don't know any of them, then I'd love to chat and pray with you. I'm 
in Catering for the rest of the day. I'm not in any hurry to go anywhere after the service. I'd love to chat with you. But come back to verse 35, because we're still only considering one of the routes to walk away from Jesus. And route two, route two of getting weighed down sounds quite different, but actually it's equally deadly. Look at verse 34 again. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the anxieties of life. The anxieties of life. The cares, the worries of earthly living. Jesus told a story about a man sowing seed in a field. The seed fell on all sorts of different soil. Some of the seed fell in a weed patch. It began to grow, but it got crowded out by the weeds. Jesus says that's like people who hear the word of God, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. They heard the word of God, and it seemed very important to them. But then it got crowded out by other things. Now, some of you are carrying anxieties this morning that I I can't imagine. Sick relatives, a nightmare at work, bills that seem impossible to cover. And the question is, what will we do with those anxieties? Will they drive us to God as we pour out our pain to him, as we ask him for help, as we search out a way through it in dependence upon him? Or will these anxieties drive us from God as we imagine that the one thing we don't have time for is to talk to the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth? the one who delights to answer our prayers. As we assume that the person who least understands us is the one who entered this world and became a man, was born in a baby, was born as a baby, lived a life like ours so that he could understand us. As we believe that the one who loved us enough to die for us doesn't care enough to help us, strengthen us, comfort us. Don't believe those lies of Satan. Don't let your anxieties drive you from Jesus. Let them bring you to Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Others of us have smaller anxieties this morning, but nonetheless ones that fill the whole of our vision, something earthbound that we long for and worry that we won't get the approval of that person, that promotion at work, that extension to our house. And they feel like huge things to us. But as they fill the whole of our vision, we show that the weightiness that they feel to us means that we have lost a grip in our minds of the weightiness of the eternal glory that Jesus is bringing when he returns. 
we're not able to say with Paul, I consider that our present sufferings, which for him was stonings and shipwrecks and being put on trial for his life, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Because our hearts have been weighed down by the things around us, by the opportunities we have that have clouded our vision. It is very hard to follow Jesus in North Korea and Iran. The government doesn't want you to follow Jesus. The government will arrest you. They will put you in horrible prisons. A setting like that, it's very hard to keep on going. It's very easy to say, it's not worth it. I can't face this. I'm going to slip quietly back into normal life. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in situations like that. But it is also hard to follow Jesus in nice Catrum and nice Kemsing where we are offered everything we could dream of. And it's hard to remember that we are in a world opposed to God. It's hard to remember that James 4 verse 4 is true, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. When there's so much on offer for us, it's easy for us to become numbed, numbed by sinful pleasures, distracted by the world's anxieties. It's easy for us to become drunk on trivialities and miss the stuff that really matters. And so, we must be careful. We must be careful. What will that look like? Well, it will look like doing verse 36. Verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Our escape route consists of two things, watching and praying. What are we watching? Well, firstly, we're watching ourselves, just like verse 34 tells us to, repenting of and fighting our sin instead of tolerating it. Taking our anxieties to Jesus instead of letting them drive us from Jesus. Considering the ways that we're getting wrapped up in this world and taking our eyes off Christ and self-consciously turning back towards him but secondly and more importantly we are not watching ourselves we are taking our gaze away from ourselves away from our concerns and we are lifting up our heads like verse 28 tells us to we are lifting up our heads and we are looking to our savior our hero who is coming we are remembering philippians 3 verse 20 we don't belong here This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so daily, we self-consciously take the effort to peel our attention off this world and fix it on something else. We do Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4. We set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. For we died, and our life now is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we eagerly, await his arrival. 
But we don't just watch. We also pray. We cannot hold on to God by our own power. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are covetous, given to getting weighed down with other things. Our hearts are deceitful. It's so easy for us to fool ourselves. And so every day, just as regularly as we pray for daily food, just as regularly as we pray for daily forgiveness, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And as we do, we know that this is what Jesus is praying for us. Not that we are taken out of the world, John 17, 15, but that we are protected from the evil one. And as we pray this, we rejoice in God's promise. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. One day, everything will change. One day, our Savior will come. Until that day, we watch and we pray. Let's do that now. Lord, you told us to watch and pray so that we will not fall in temptation. Lord, we acknowledge that our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. Our hearts are so prone to turn away from you, so prone to get weighed down with the things of this world. And so, Father, we ask that you would have mercy on us. We ask that you would hold on to us. We ask that you would keep us from stumbling. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would present us before the Father, before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. We pray that you would keep us going until that day. That day when you appear visibly, when every eye sees you and every knee bows before you and we are caught up with you to see your glory, to be with you, to be like you, to be at home with you forever. Help us to long for that day, we pray, and keep us safe until that day. Amen.